Well, friends, everyone who has been born into the world since our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden, every one of us has been born under the death, a death sentence. We are all destined to die. But if no one of us could it be said that we were born for the express purpose of dying, you will die unless Jesus comes back. I will die, but we were not born to die. But of one man, it could be said he was born for the express purpose of dying. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called in the Bible, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He says of himself, for the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to die and to have his death serve as a ransom payment for all of the sins of all of the people who would trust in him. And from the dawning of Jesus' consciousness as a boy, he knew that he had an appointment with the painful death of the cross. And it was a long and hard road to the cross for Jesus. Late in his ministry, he begins to open up to his nearest disciples, the Twelve, the fact that he will suffer and he will be killed. And as you know, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. They had a different idea of the Messiah's mission than one who would suffer and die. And so God the Father decides to give Jesus an encouraging experience recorded in Mark 9. And I ask that you be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. On a mountain where Jesus had taken his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to pray, he is transfigured before their eyes. And it's a foretaste of the messianic glory that awaited him after he completed his messianic mission. He's given the encouragement of heavenly fellowship with Moses and Elijah. And he hears a word of affirmation from God, his father, saying that this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And in another gospel, with him, I'm well pleased. What a refreshing reprieve for Jesus from the hard, lonely road to Calvary. What an oasis of encouragement for our Lord. But the glorious radiance soon dissipated. The heavenly visitor soon disappeared. And the voice from heaven grew silent. And the lonely, hard path toward Jerusalem's suffering and death needed to be resumed. And as Jesus and the inner circle of three disciples descend from the mountain, they are plunged once again into the realities of a world that is scourged by sin and Satan. And in chapter 9 of Mark, verses 14 to 29, we saw the event that I described as the deliverance of the demonized boy. Follow as I read again that narrative, Mark 9, 14. When they came back to the disciples from that Mount of Transfiguration, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to meet him or to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whatever, whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. 
And he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deafened and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. So Jesus and the three come down from the mountain, and they find the nine remaining disciples in an argument with the Jewish scribes. The issue is about this demonized boy that has been brought to the disciples by his father. The cruel demon had afflicted him with deafness and muteness. It would seize him, slam him to the ground where he foamed at the mouth, grinding his teeth and suffering. All the marks of a grand mal epileptic seizure. When Jesus hears of the inability of the disciples to cast out the demon, he expresses exasperation over the entire generation. Jesus then asks the boy to be brought to him. Seeing Jesus, the boy throws him into a convulsion. He falls down, rolling around and foaming. And Jesus then asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, since childhood, since being a little a very small child. The father asks Jesus if in his compassion he can help. And Jesus challenges his statement. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father then exclaims, I do believe, but then he qualifies, help my unbelief. Jesus commands the unclean spirit to leave and not come back, which the spirit does and must do, but only after throwing the boy once more into terrible convulsions. The boy appears dead, but he is not dead. Jesus takes him by the hand and raises him up. When they ask privately of Jesus, why did we fail to cast out this demon? Jesus answers in verse 29, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Well, We opened up that passage last week, and I began to make application. I said there are lessons to be learned about Satan and his kingdom of demons, and we did that last week. Additional lessons we learn about Jesus and about the Christian life. I hope to cover both of these, but I may only cover the first, given our time. What are some lessons we learn about Jesus From this narrative. Now, the lessons we learn about Jesus are largely repetitious of lessons we have already learned in the Gospel of Mark, but it's hard to overcontemplate Jesus, isn't it? It's hard to have too much focus on Jesus. Our problem is generally we don't have enough focus on Jesus. So I don't apologize for reminding us of some of the things about Jesus that we need to contemplate. First, contemplate the amazing person of Jesus. Verse 15, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed 
and began running up to greet him. Haven't we seen it as a note sounded frequently in the Gospel of Mark and really in all the Gospels, how consistently amazed people are with Jesus? Not recorded in Mark, but recorded in Luke chapter 2, it says when he was a boy of 12, all who heard him in the temple were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He began to amaze people, even the rabbis, when he was 12 years old by his understanding of the scriptures and his wise answers. In Mark chapter 1, in the synagogue, it says the crowd was amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In chapter 2, the man is lowered through a roof, the crippled man lowered by his friends through a hole in the roof. And it says they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this after Jesus forgives him. And then he says, take up your bed and walk, and the man does. In chapter 6, 2, in his hometown of Nazareth, where the people shortly afterward will be so fiercely angry with Jesus that they would have thrown him off a cliff if he had allowed them. But in that very context, it says many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him in such miracles as these performed by his hands? Even when they hated what he said, they marveled at his words and the graciousness with which he spoke those words. In chapter 7, he heals a deaf man. And we read, they were utterly astonished saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Later on in chapter 10, we're going to see that it reads, the disciples were amazed at his words. And in chapter 10, 32, we're going to see that as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, where he knows his hour is awaiting him, he goes with such resolve that without saying a word, without doing anything, it says, and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. On that occasion, he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He just set his face like a flint, and there was such a resolve in him that his entourage was amazed, and they followed him with fear. The point is that Jesus is amazing. He was amazing when he walked the earth. He is amazing in the perfections of his humanity. Aren't we often aware of our own imperfections? the imbalances of our lives, the stupid things we say, the selfishness and pride of our hearts, so often manifested. We are so filled with flaws and imperfections, but Jesus is perfect. He had every gift in perfect balance, every grace in perfect beauty. He was amazing when he walked the earth. We will be amazed when we see him face to face. And the application for us is we should be amazed in contemplation of Jesus now. A couple of weeks ago, our brother Clint preached on the eternity of God from Psalm 90. I listened to that sermon, very much appreciate it. And he called us to what we have been created with, a sense of awe. We have been made with a sense of awe and wonder. And he called us to have awe in contemplation of God an eternal being who had no beginning, try to fathom that, who has no end, who created ex nihilo out of nothing. I walk through the woods and I say, here are trees and men more gifted than me. Some of you woodworkers, you make beautiful things out of wood, but you didn't make the tree out of nothing. But God makes things out of nothing. The thoughts of God are too great for us. 
and it ought to fill us with awe. And so we ought to be awestruck by Jesus. You know, I have to say that one of the words that has come into vogue in recent decades is awesome. Everything is awesome, right? Every little thing, that's awesome. That's awesome. We're, most of us are guilty of that, right? And we have to be careful because if that little thing is awesome, what do we reserve for Jesus or God? Is he awesome, awesome, or awesome, awesome, awesome? It's like Francis Schaeffer used to speak of true truth. So we have to be careful in our language. Things are good. You know, I'm guilty of this. Oh, that's great. Well, is it really great? You know, it's great that you're coming to the retreat. It's good. But, you know, we have to guard our language. We have to save our superlatives for God and for Jesus. Jesus is truly awesome. Jesus is truly amazing. And we need to increasingly be filled with awe as we contemplate the Lord Jesus. Don't go too far from the Gospels in your devotions. I mean, it's a big Bible. We want to cover the whole thing. But don't be away from the Gospels too long before you come back to the Gospels and you contemplate Jesus because he is amazing. And he's amazing for our awe, and he's also amazing in the sense that we are to imitate him. He is perfect humanity we are to imitate Jesus. And as we contemplate Jesus, we ought to think often in our everyday life as we act and interact, as we respond, as we speak, as we think. It's right to ask the question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do in a similar situation? How did Jesus think? How did Jesus speak? How did Jesus respond? How did Jesus react in a similar situation? 2 Corinthians 3.18 ought to be a reality to us but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The concept there is as we behold him, we become more like him. So we need to behold the Lord Jesus in all of his perfections, because only then will we become more like him. And I would ask you the question, for those who know you best, can they say that they are seeing more and more of the likeness of Jesus Christ in you, in your attitudes, in your actions, in your words, in your interactions? Are you beholding him, and are you, as a result, becoming more like him? And then from this narrative, contemplate the holy exasperation of Jesus. Verse 19 he comes down from the mountain. He's presented with this ugly scenario of this boy who's being beaten up by this demon. The father had come to Jesus and asked him, them to cast it out. They were not able. And in response, Jesus expresses this holy exasperation. Verse 19, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And we said last week that he was exasperated with the entire society. He wasn't exasperated just with one element of society. He was exasperated with the entire society. We know he was exasperated with his own disciples, right? Pulling together some words we have seen from Mark. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? Those are words directed to his, his 12. His 12 frustrated him and exasperated him. 
And no doubt in verse 19 here, part of his exasperation was with his disciples who had failed to carry out this exorcism and cast out the demon. We know he was exasperated with his enemies. In chapter 8, verse 12, it says, sighing deeply. That was a sigh of exasperation, a sigh of frustration. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And that refers to his enemies. Show us a sign, Jesus, as if they hadn't seen enough. Show us a sign and we'll believe. And his enemies exasperated him. And when we ask from what source does Jesus' exasperation and frustration come? And remember, it was holy exasperation. Everything about Jesus, every emotion of Jesus is pure and holy. He's the lamb without spot or blemish. So whatever frustration, exasperation, it is not selfish. It is not sinful. It is holy exasperation. What was the source of it? I think we can say this. Jesus was exasperated and frustrated because the things of the spiritual life, the things of heaven, the things of his father were so real and so alive to Jesus that the sinful things of earth were a constant grief to him. He was grieved perpetually with the wickedness that he witnessed in this sin-cursed world. It grieved him to face the hardened unbelief of his enemies. It grieved him to see the workings of the devil and the workings of demons and what they were doing to those made in in the image of, of God. Even the unbelief of his disciples exasperated him. The longer Jesus lived on the earth, the more he longed to be back with his father and the glories of heaven. And we are called to be like him. And this can be one measure of our growth in our likeness to Jesus. Are you experiencing more and more frustration and exasperation as you live in the world. What does the hymn say? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As your life goes on, what direction are you moving in? Are you becoming more and more a friend of this world, more and more enamored of this world and this life, Or are you feeling more and more what Peter says we ought to be sensing, that we're aliens and exiles, we're strangers in this world, we're just passing through, this world is not our home. Are you becoming more like Abraham, who looked for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God? Jesus was never comfortable in this world. He never nestled in and got comfortable But the things of a sinful world perpetually grieved him and frustrated him and exasperated him because of the holiness of his his heart. How can you measure such things? Well, here are a few ways. The Lord's Day is a day that has been set apart for us to be with God's people, to worship him, right? And to fellowship with him and to enjoy him as a respite from the work-a-day world. We're to work six days, and there's a day that God has given us as a day set apart. It's a day, koriakos, belonging to the Lord. Like there's a, a supper, koriakos, a supper belonging to the Lord. There's a day that belongs to the Lord. Are you enjoying that day more and more? Are you more and more looking forward to being with your brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowshipping with them, not only on the Lord's Day, but at other times? 
as you interact more and more with people in the workplace and you see how people are denying truth and people are buying into a, a worldview that, that is so contrary to the Bible, is it refreshing, as I know it was to my soul this weekend, to be with my brothers who all believe there's truth and there's truth in God's word. And when we talk to one another, we make sense to one another because we're all working from the same vantage point, the same worldview. And that's refreshing, especially as the world more and more gets away from a biblical worldview. Our times alone with God and his word becoming more meaningful to you, more refreshing to you rather than less. Now, I never want to sound like an ascetic. An ascetic is one who can't enjoy the blessings and the good things of this life. We are not ascetics. The Apostle Paul says God has given us all things freely to enjoy. We enjoyed good food yesterday, thanks in part to some of you ladies. Guys enjoyed shooting shotguns, and we enjoyed catching some fish, and all those things are enjoyable. And God wants us to enjoy them. We're not ascetics. We enjoy this world. But this world never becomes so comfortable to us that we don't long for another. Jesus never got nestled in and comfortable. It always grieved him to see the sin that surrounded him. Right to the end, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And there is a lot to exasperate us in our world today, isn't there? Even as our brother Coram reflected, the horrible reversal of values in our day so that truly we are fulfilling Isaiah 520. We're calling evil good and good evil. When our society can affirm as good the murder of children in the womb and decry the fact that a state is trying, like Texas is trying to eliminate it, and they see that as evil and abortion good, we are in Isaiah 520. We're in a fearful place. The postmodern philosophy by which there is no absolute truth and two plus two can equal five, except in, in, in morality and ethics, but not in the hard sciences, sciences. You don't want the designers of your airplane or the designers of your bridges to be postmodern, right? Two plus two better not equal five for them in the hard sciences. But in ethics and morals, somehow two plus two can equal five. I've heard interviews with Todd Friel interviewing college kids, physics, engineering majors, and he says, now two plus two equals four, right? And to hear these kids say, well, it depends. And you say, what? It depends. And you're an engineering major. You're going to build our bridges. It depends. I mean, postmodernism, there's no absolute truth. We define truth for ourselves. That is exasperating. The moral revolution that is trampling underfoot the creation ordinances, creation itself, genders, marriage, family, and as we're very much aware, the encroaching tyranny of the state, which wants to be our God and tell us what we must put in our bodies or you will lose your job or lose travel rights or purchasing privileges. It's fearful, right? Now, brothers and sisters, in light of what we have sung, let us not lose heart. God is still on his throne. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will, as we say in modern parlance, God's got this, okay? God is not being taken by surprise. He's the sovereign, and he will build this church. So I'm not calling us to lose heart, to be disheartened. But I am saying this, that if those realities grieve you, exasperate you, and make you sigh, well, be encouraged because Jesus got exasperated with a sin-cursed world as well. 
And so in some sense, it ought to exasperate us. It ought to frustrate us if we're going more like Jesus and making us long for our heavenly home. But thou next, contemplate the compassionate patience of Jesus. In this scenario, we also see that. Verse 19. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. The compassionate patience of Jesus. And in 922, as the father describes the condition of the son, it has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. In the original Greek, it says, having taken pity, aorist participle, help us. Jesus, I'm appealing to your pity. And in your pity and in your compassion, will you help us? And so we need to contemplate the compassionate patience of Jesus. Jesus asks rhetorically, how long shall I be with you? And yet he did continue with them. He did not quit the world before he accomplished what God the Father had called him to do. Jesus asks, how long shall I put up with you? But he did put up with them. He did bear with them. He did hold himself firm and erect in the face of those disappointments. Jesus did bear with the slow of heart disciples. He did bear with the unbelieving crowds. He bore with his hateful enemies. Hebrews 12, 3 says, For consider him who has endured, same word, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Why did Jesus endure? I think the answer in part is in John 17, 19, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer says to his father, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Why did Jesus set himself apart for this hard work? For their sakes, for the sake of the people I came to redeem, I set myself apart for this work that they might be sanctified. Jesus endured patiently, for our sake, for the sake of our salvation. And he didn't quit until he went all the way to the cross for our sake. And if we ask further, digging a little more deeply, what within himself inclined him to endure? I think we have the answer in our text here, as I pointed out from verse 22. Having taken pity, help us. And that word pity is compassion. When the father said to Jesus, having taken pity, he pressed the right button. The word is compassion. And it was Christ's compassion that moved him to so many of his acts of kindness. It was his compassion that inclined him to persevere. Remember his compassion in Mark 1:41, moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. A leper whom no one would dare get close to, let alone touch. And in his compassion, he touched the leper and made him well. 
In 634, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion on them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He had compassion not only for physical needs, but when he saw people untaught who were literally flayed by their false teachers, the Pharisees, he was moved with compassion toward them and he taught them. In chapter 8, verse 2, we saw, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And he fed them. Spiritual need, compassion, he taught them. Physical need, compassion, he fed them. And here, he looks upon this boy, he looks upon this desperate father, helpless, who has endured this trial since the boy was little. And he sees the cruelty of the demon dashing him to the ground. And Jesus moved with compassion, said, bring him to me. So what do we do with that? Well, let's first of all be grateful for the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ toward us. As I thought about Jesus' words, bring him to me. There's a sense in which Jesus said that in eternity past about every one of us. Are we not chosen in him before the foundation of the world? Are we not the elect of God from before the foundation of the world? Did Jesus not say, all that the Father gives me shall come to me? So there's a sense in which we could put ourselves in the place of that demonized boy. Because in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son said about you, if you are a believer, bring him to me. Bring that one to me. And by his efficacious grace, through his spirit, he brought you to Jesus. Jesus said in John 6, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We believe in sovereign grace. We glory in sovereign grace. We would not have come if Jesus had not drawn, if God had not drawn. So there's a sense in which we can identify with that boy because it was said of us by Jesus in eternity, bring him to me, bring her to me. And you came because he drew you, his efficacious grace. But then, in imitation of Jesus, let us be compassionately patient with others as he was. Let us pity those who are lost in sin and slaves to sin. You see, on the one hand, we're to keep ourselves unstained from the world. On the other hand, the same Jesus who says, I've taken them out of the world. They're not part of the society called the world. They're part of this new society, the redeemed, the church. He's taken us out of the world. But in that prayer in John 17, he also says, I send them back into the world. He doesn't call, call us out of the world to have our own little enclave, our own little bubble kept to ourselves. He takes us out that we might be refreshed and built up in his church, but then he sends us back into the world to win the world. And so we need to have the compassionate patience of Jesus toward the lost. And to you who are parents, I want to give this word. On the one hand, and I've said it often, you need to protect your children from the world. You need to protect them. Protect, I said in a recent sermon, Protect what they read. Protect what they see on TV or social media. Protect their friends. It's your job to protect them from the world. But let me balance that out. There are two things that you ought to fear, and fear them equally. Fear raising little worldlings, but also fear raising little Pharisees. 
who are so righteous in themselves that they look with scorn at others who are lost. Fear both equally. Protect them from the world. But also by your example and by your words, show them that we are to have compassion for lost people. Fear raising little worldlings and fear raising self-righteous Pharisees and fear both equally. It's a tall order, but God will give grace to do that. And then, fourthly, contemplate the delivering power of Jesus. Jesus came with this express purpose, 1 John 3, 8. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. His exorcisms, his casting out of demons, are proof that the kingdom of God has come in him. Jesus, as we've seen, was the stronger than the strong man. The devil's too strong for us, held us captive. The stronger than the strong man comes, binds the strong man and plunders his goods and sets us free. And if anyone is here and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, let me call you to see yourself as the Bible presents you. You are the subject of a kingdom, but it is not God's kingdom. It is the kingdom of Satan. You are, you do have a ruler over you, but it's not God. It's the devil. You are, according to the Bible, outside of Jesus Christ, a son or daughter, we might say, of disobedience. Your very nature is to disobey God. And you did nothing to get into that kingdom because you all we all were born into that kingdom. But if you die in that kingdom, you will forever be separated from the kingdom of God, and you go to a place that the Bible says has been prepared for the devil and his angels, namely hell. But to you who may be outside of Jesus Christ, I say there's a way out of that kingdom. There's a way out of that kingdom of, of, of darkness and hell. But there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Only Jesus can deliver you from that kingdom because only Jesus can remove the hook by which Satan has a hold of you, and that hook is sin. Jesus alone died for our sins, and when your sins are paid for by Jesus, the devil has nothing with which to accuse you. You are guiltless in the sight of, of the devil and God because Jesus has taken your sins. Therefore, you will be spared going to where he is. You will be transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And in that kingdom, you will be safe forever and live with God forever. So if you're not a Christian, I call you right now in the name of Jesus to believe in Jesus Christ. You're in the devil's kingdom and you're slated to live with him and his demons forever in a place called the lake of fire. In Jesus' name, I call you to repent. Turn from your rebellion. Come to Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him and you will be transferred into his kingdom where you will be safe for time and eternity. But for those of us who are believers, casting out of a demon was a small thing compared to what Jesus has done for you. He has taken you out of that kingdom of darkness where you and I were destined to live with the devil and demons forever. He's rescued us from that kingdom. and He's brought us into the kingdom, his own kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son. And we are safe within the bounds of that kingdom. 
No one is able to snatch us from the hand of Christ, not even the devil. We are safely in his hand, and according to John 10, we have the overlaying hand of God the Father doubly protecting us from the devil's kingdom. No one is able to snatch you from his hand. You are safe in his kingdom. But we might say that he will still oppose you, he will tempt you, he will accuse you, and we still have a battle to fight. We need to resist him firm in our faith, not ignorant of his devices. Well, brothers and sisters, I have about half a sermon to preach, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to save it. It's going to be a short sermon because haven't you often heard, if only the preacher stopped at this point, he had me, but he went five minutes, 10 minutes too long, and he lost me. I don't want to do that. I'd rather earn the direction of cutting it short. So I'll preach the other application, lessons from this passage about the Christian life, God willing, next week. Let's pray, and I will dismiss us. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. We confess that we were all by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience, daughters of disobedience. We were in the devil's kingdom, and we were destined to spend eternity where he is, in the place prepared for the devil and and his angels. But we thank you, Father, that in eternity past, for those who are believers, you said, in effect, bring him to me. Bring her to me. And in time... Your spirit came and drew us and brought us to your son. And we thank you that in him we have eternal life and you will raise us up in the last day. Father, for any who are here who do not yet know you, impress upon them with fear that they are in the wrong kingdom and they have a horrific destiny. Give them the grace to repent and believe that they too might be transferred to the kingdom of your beloved son and experience the joyous life of freedom that you have given to us in Jesus. We ask for your mercy in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.